This is the BBC. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello. In March 1861 in St Petersburg, Tsar Alexander II proclaimed that Russian serfs were now free. Alexander's nobles had owned tens of millions of Slavs or serfs, effectively slaves, who worked their land and could be bought and sold, sent to fight in wars, flogged and even killed with impunity. There was a catch in their freedom, though. The former serfs needed needed land to grow their food. The nobles kept the best for themselves and the serfs had to pay for their allotted scraps of earth for decades, tied to servitude by debt. More reforms were needed, but none came. And the tensions, the scholars argue, helped pull Russia apart in 1917. With me to discuss the emancipation of the serfs are Sarah Hotspeth, Associate Professor in Russian at the University of Leeds, Simon Dixon, the Sir Bernard Paz Professor of Russian History at UCL, and Shane O'Rourke, Senior Lecturer in History at the University of York. Simon Dixon, what were the origins What were the origins of serfdom in Russia? Well, the origins of serfdom lay in a process that took the uh, best part of 200 years, really, between the 15th and the 17th centuries, the mid-15th and mid-17th centuries. And the logic there was driven partly by the need of the state to placate particular interest groups, because that 200-year period was a period of Muscovy territorial expansion. And so in a free market, the price of labour would have gone up. And indeed it did go up. And the logical consequence of that was that peasants started running away from uh, lords who couldn't pay them to lords who could pay them more. And that was a problem for the state because the state needed the middle-ranking landlords to officer the cavalry. And in order to officer the cavalry, of course, they needed some labour force at home. So the idea was to restrict peasant movement in order to keep peasants tied to the middle-ranking cavalry officers. And uh, peasant movement was restricted by a series of uh, acts introduced at crisis points in the 1450s, in the 1590s, and finally again in 1649. And after that, serfdom is more or less uh, in, in, uh, in Russian legislation. Now, it's then consolidated in the 18th century largely for fiscal reasons because it's much easier to tax people when you know where they are. So the idea was to keep serfs tied down to their communes, to their estates, so that they could be taxed to pay for 18th century reforms. So what you have is a kind of paradox that in order to pay for modernising political institutions and modernising Uh, uh, military forces, you actually reinforced a far from modern system of social relations and a very large number of unfree serfs. Can you describe the restrictions that surrounded serfdom and perhaps compare them with slavery in in the United States? Well, the restrictions for serfs were, were more or less total. That, uh, In one sense, legally, they were totally unfree people. Uh, and secondly, of course, uh, they had all sorts of marriage restrictions that could be run by their landlords. But we can see a bit more about it by making the comparisons. The most obvious comparison, of course, is racial. In the States, uh, serfs were Africans, West Africans, quite different race, visibly quite different from the native population. Whereas in Russia, of course, it was Russians who were enserfed. But I think perhaps there's a a more um, important difference in some ways, and that's that 
the, the size of the plantations in, in the States was quite small, so you had quite a personal relationship between the plantation owner and his slaves. And in Russia that wasn't the case. Most serfs in Russia lived on very large estates, uh, run by bailiffs, on behalf of absentee landlords who lived in Moscow or St. Petersburg. Most Russian nobles had a very small number of serfs, and we don't really know much about how they lived, but the majority of serfs lived on the estates owned by a comparatively small number of really wealthy aristocrats, and they were uh, treated in a variety of ways. So I suppose that's the big thing to drive home, that we can't really speak of a single servile experience. It varied quite a lot, depending on the bailiffs, depending on the nature of the land that you were working. Uh, was it fertile land, in which case you probably have bigger labour services, or was it infertile land, in which case, as a serf, you might go off into the town and make all sorts of products. So there's quite a wide variety of experience for the serfs. There's, but there are quite many reports of brutality uh, and, and so on. These, these aristocratic women who tortured and murdered 100 women and girls mostly and, of course, got away with it. And Is that completely atypical? It's certainly unusual, I think. This mm. was Princess Saltachika, who attracted a lot of tension by behaving exactly as a noble shouldn't behave. It's almost certainly true that house serfs were treated worse than... Uh, uh, serfs on the estate but on the other hand if you only had a few serfs and they were your sole uh, property and your sole resource it wasn't wise to mistreat them because they couldn't work on your behalf so it looks as though there was quite a variety of treatment some landlords punished virtually all their serfs at some point some landlords punished only recidivists as it were so again there's a, quite a lot of variety Thank you. Sarah Hudson. how did they make a living? You mentioned paid. I got the feeling they were paid in kind. So I'm a serf on this great estate. I go out and do the work I'm told to do. What do I get in return? I, I, get, I, I can't leave the land. I, I, my marriage arrangements are interfered with and so on and so forth. But what do I get in return for, as far as subsistence goes? Uh, typically a, um, a small area of land that the, uh, the the serf and his family would be allowed to to farm for their own for their own produce really um, and um, maybe the provision of somewhere to live um, and and not a great deal else you know um, very little in the way of opportunities for education or um, or, or any other kind of social social uh, care or looking after. Well, well, what were the religious justifications for serfdom? Um, well, only really insofar as um, the serfs were at the bottom of a very hierarchical societal structure, um, the top of which was the Tsar, um, who was considered to be uh, divinely ordained uh, to have the, the authority of God. And this, this uh, um, mainly came from the idea... Uh, that uh, that Russia, uh, centred in Moscow, was the last bastion of Orthodox Christianity, the last defender of uh, of the uh, what they believe to be the the original Christianity after the fall of Constantinople, and so um, the structure of the society was seen as a kind of uh, enormous hierarchical family with the Tsar at the head. He was seen as the father and divinely ordained, and so. Um, the the religious justification, I suppose, sort of trickled down through that structure. Um, but of course, it was very hard to justify in Christian ethical terms um, the idea of uh, of serfdom. And I think that was one of the reasons that um, people began to, uh, to to question it and to to think that it might be a system that 
um, that really wasn't um, morally defensible. But the, the number 22 million, about 22 million serfs crops up, but there were more than that, weren't there? Because these were the serfs on the land, but there was state slaves or state serfs, how many, who, who a few years later, they too were emancipated. How many of those were there? Um, uh, to be honest, I think um, um, one of the others would be better answering that. We just need a number. 23 million. Another 23 million. So we're talking about somewhere <coughs> over 40 million one way and another serfs in mm-hmm. Russia in, in the, in the mid-late uh, 19th century. Compared with the rest of Europe, how did that look? Uh, pretty severe, really, yes. Um, and what were the writers at the time make? What did the writers of the time make of it? This is the time when the great Russian writers are bursting through and all saying what great Russian writers they are. What were they saying about the serfs? Well, this is something that um, began to be discussed um, as the 19th century uh, progressed because uh, literature as a medium for discussing social issues uh, was um, starting to really take off in the in the 19th century. And so it became a platform where people could uh, put forward their ideas about uh, possible changes to society. Um, for example, um, we have the, the writer Nikolai Gorgol uh, in his wonderful novel Dead Souls, uh, which is a story about... Um, uh, a businessman who wants to try and establish himself, and he uses uh, an interesting loophole in the in the tax system, uh, whereby serfs um, who had died um, were still um, on a census register, um, w- which was used for um, for landowners to be taxed, um, but they were still featuring on that census until the next census point. And the hero of this story uh, decides to buy up the dead souls, the souls was how they referred to the serfs, in order to try and make himself look like a wealthy businessman. And in this text, um, you see Gorgol writing about a whole range of different uh, experiences of um, the relationship between landowner and serfs. Um, It's quite a satirical novel. So he's um, very much um, mocking the attitudes of the landowners towards their serfs. But there was a second part which didn't get published in his lifetime where he showed himself to be a terrific conservative and and saying, well, let well be, this is fine. Indeed. um, It wasn't so much let let well be, it was more um, that if land ownership and um, the ownership of, of the serfs was done properly then it was um, a a valid system. And this was what caused a great deal of controversy um, with with some of his readers. Um, This part, as I say, it wasn't published in his lifetime, um, but the second part of Dead Souls, which was hotly anticipated, was replaced instead by um, a kind of memoir um, and and series of essays that that he wrote instead. Um, called Selected Passages from Correspondence with Friends. And um, his readership, and particularly um, the more progressive uh, thinkers who'd begun to be influenced by socialism in France, um, were very um, very upset at his reaction where he seemed to be defending serfdom. Thank you. <clears throat> Shane O'Rourke, other Tsars beforehand, let's start with Catherine the Great uh, in the late 18th century, had tried and considered the emancipation of serfs. It took um, 70 years for it to get done. Why did it take so long in that sense? Basically because it was such an enormous task. Um, we're talking, you know, millions of people. Nothing like that had ever been attempted before. There were no precedents uh, and no one was, had any uh, conception of what the consequences might be. 
Catherine raised the issue, with, but it was made very clear to her by the nobles that her throne depended on leaving it well alone. Catherine's position was rather shaky. She was a usurper. Her husband had been murdered. Um, and although she was a great empress, um, she decided she had to leave serfdom alone. Her son did actually interfere with serfdom. He restricted the number of days that could be worked to three days a week. That was all the landlord could demand from you. And there was no working on Sunday couldn't be enforced of course and Paul her son was later strangled by the as her husband had been murdered too yes yes so the son was murdered yes, as well yes because tempered by assassination yes, that, that in the start? yes yes so I mean that, um, so it was very clear that tampering with serfdom was extremely dangerous that there was a real risk of a palace coup um, Alexander the, Alexander the first I think was emotionally uh, very against serfdom. He really wanted to do something about it. And he did actually introduce some minor reforms. There were reforms in the Baltic states in 1803 and again in 1816 to 1819. They, um, but these, this reform turned out to be a disaster. There was, um, the, the peasants there were emancipated without land. And what ended up was creating a massive rural proletariat who, if anything, were even more dependent on their landlords after the, um, emancipation. So there was a, a recognition that if there was to be an emancipation in Russia itself, in the central territories, then they couldn't follow this path. And so you had that bubbling away under the surface. Were, uh, were, there, any, were there any fears of, of a revolt of the perps, rebellion of the serfs? There were always those fears. I mean, there had been the Great Rebellion during the reign of Catherine of Pugachev, uh, which sort of seared in, was seared into the memory of the nobility. So that was there as a um, still within living memory in the 19th century um, in the sense that there was nothing like that in the 19th century and although there was lots of unrest there were riots there were uh, they all tended to be relatively localized contained and none of them really presented a threat to the system as a whole so that there wasn't that fear that um, there's an imminent threat that's going to overthrow the whole system but there's a recognition it was uh, damaging in the long run to the stability of the regime. And there's a sense in which the serfs were bonded into the imperialistic mission to make Russia great, that their landowners would often take the serfs or <coughs> give as part of their due, give the, send them into the army, so it would be serf, serf uh, army, which uh, Simon Dixon was one of the problems with Crimea. After Russia's great triumph against Napoleon, uh, they went to Crimea and were humiliated. And a lot of them said because the serfs were uneducated, untrained and cynical. Yes, that's right. Uh, Alexander II, of course, came to the throne in February 1855, right in the middle of the Crimean War, mm. at a very difficult stage for the Russians. And Russia's humiliation in Crimea was certainly, I think, the key incident that pushed this final reform. Uh, the, the reform is, of course, formulated in the bureaucracy, and uh, Alexander could draw on a range of people who've become known as the enlightened bureaucrats. They, this was a generation of bureaucrats who'd come to prominence in his father's reign, under Nicholas I, and they'd started not only collecting information about what was going on in the countryside, but analysing it and trying to use it. So there was a sort of ready-made body of reformist bureaucrats uh, prepared to... Uh, in, introduce the reform. The question was how you could persuade the Tsar to do it. And we still don't know exactly how that was done because Alexander doesn't say very much. He's taciturn like a lot of monarchs. He doesn't tell you what he's thinking. But we believe that three people were quite crucial in acting as a sort of link between the enlightened bureaucrats and the court. Uh, and they were two of 
uh, the Tsar's relatives, his brother, Konstantin Nikolaevich, who was very much a modernizing naval reformer, so he knew what was necessary for a modern naval force, but at the same time also a very strong orthodox uh, believer. Uh, the Tsar's aunt, a Grand Duchess Yelena Pavlovna, who was, again, a very strong cultural figure, interested in music in St. Petersburg and so on. Uh, and their salons and their activity helped to make a bridge between the uh, Tsar and the bureaucrats. But the key figure is probably General Rostovsov, who you might not have thought of as a reformer until this stage. He'd been a very conservative figure under Nicholas I. But in the late 1850s, he began to study the work of the enlightened bureaucrats and convinced himself that this was uh, what needed to be done. So, But by the time he died in February 1860, the reform legislation was more or less prepared uh, and wasn't altered much after that. Sarah, Sarah Smith, what support was there for emancipation among the intelligentsia? Uh, well, by um, by the 1850s, there was uh, there was indeed growing support, and it was um, quite interesting to see that that was across the range of the political ideological spectrum. Um, for example, you had um, the progressive Westernising um, intellectuals who felt that emancipation was necessary for socio-economic reasons and to modernise Russia. Um, and then you have the more conservative, Slavophile intellectuals who felt that, um, nevertheless, that, that serfdom was still um, necessary uh, to, um, you know, it was necessary to, to emancipate the serfs um, for the purposes of reuniting Russian society. The Slavophile thinkers felt very much that the gentry and the aristocracy had become deracinated they'd become too detached from their original russian heritage through all the sort of the the modernizing reforms of peter the great for example and, the, and also it was showed itself in in what they wore wasn't it and what they didn't wear they didn't wear long beards and and they did wear western clothes they didn't wear caftans they were and so on. for example yes yes so so all the sort of the cultural changes that had made the gentry look so different and behave so differently sort of the french salon culture that they'd adopted and and quite often the french languages as well. Um, it was as if there were um, two very, very different um, social groups who had nothing any more in common. And the, even the conservative th thinkers felt that to get back to sort of the true, authentic Russian heritage, it was necessary to reunite society by emancipating the serfs and getting in touch with some of the, um, what they felt to be the essential Russian values of community, um, and, and simple brotherhood um, that they felt that the peasantry held. And Simon's talked about influences at court, when, and I mentioned the intelligentsia. Were they, were they beginning to make themselves heard in pamphlets inside their books and so on? Absolutely, yes. Um, so um, I think a, a good um, example that we could mention here of, um, of a literary um, portrayal that came out just uh, prior to, uh, to emancipation was uh, Dostoevsky's uh, The House of the Dead. Um, this is his account of his time in a Siberian prison colony uh, and um, he was he was there unfortunately because of um, an early involvement with a, a progressive uh, circle um, in his youth and um, the majority of the convict population were of, um, of of peasant stock of serf stock and Dostoevsky very keenly felt that he wasn't he was he was unable to to connect with his fellow prisoners because of his um, nobility background he, he wasn't you know an, an aristocrat by any stretch but he was technically of that class and they shunned him they really didn't want to have anything to do with him um, even though 
he was on the face of it. He'd been levelled by the idea of being sentenced um, to hard labour. <coughs> and so his account um, of um, his experiences in, in the colony, you can see very much how he felt that there was this, this need to somehow reconnect with the whole of the Russian population to understand what they had to offer um, and to, 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 to learn from them as much as being able to, to teach them. Um, can we just talk about slip in about Tolstoy here because Absolutely. he's such a big figure in mm. Russia and he, he was on one side of the fence then he was on the other side of the fence. Can you t describe those two positions for us now? Um, I think Tolstoy... Um, was very interested in the uh, the moral values that he saw in the peasantry, uh, and um, in some of his early writings, um, you will see um, peasant characters who offer um, some kind of wisdom to the main characters. And of course, a really um, well known example of that is uh, War and Peace. And uh, listeners may have seen the recent um, adaptation and be familiar with this. Um, so. Uh, there was a, a peasant a prisoner of war that the main character Pierre uh, meets when he's um, captured by the French um, in the um, Napoleonic Wars and this peasant character uh, demonstrates uh, that um, he is able to live um, a fulfilling life because he has the attitude that he he cannot control his life, he cannot control his fate and so he therefore acknowledges that his fate is in the hands of God and this is a message that he's able to try and pass on. And that prompted or went alongside Tolstoy's view of the, in a sense, you tell me if I'm wrong, idealisation of the Serbs, his, his, he himself working on the land, they were the soul of Russia. And then that changed and we see that in Anna Karenina. Um, in Anna Karenina, I think um, we still have... Um, the idea of the peasant as someone who can who can teach the um, the, the the nobility something. Um, I don't think there's a dramatic shift really um, from War and Peace to Anna Karenina. Um, the main the main sort of shift there is actually more to do with Tolstoy himself and his personal feelings towards um, uh, his own um, his own class and his own society um, and and sort of his his his, his rejection of that. Um, but what you also see from Anna Karenina onwards in Tolstoy's writing is the way in which um, the the idea of trying to bridge that gulf becomes um, quite problematic. It's not something that's easily done. It's no pat answers to it. What does he call it? A divine problem or something? Uh, an accursed question. An accursed question, but yes. the thing he has, which is rather worrying, but a delightful one or something. Serfdom is an evil, Pardon? but a very pleasant one. Can you say it again? Serfdom is an evil, but a very pleasant one. Yeah, that gets so, you this right, so. doesn't it? Okay, well, um, Shane, we'll stay with you for this very pleasant evil. Um, um, what were the terms of the emancipation insofar as the serfs were directly affected? We're talking about 1861, and the, well, it was proclaimed in churches throughout the land, a Raj document, you're all free. What happened then? Well, what happened then is that there was a period of two years where things basically remained the same. The, uh, it's a temporary period. Uh, after that, there was a seven-year, or there was a uh, transitional period in which the serfs and their masters would work out precisely which land would go to whom, uh, how they would pay for it, uh, and generally the terms of the settlement after that period uh, what will begin then will be the payment back to the state uh, because the state advanced the money to the 
on behalf of the serfs to the gentry. And then the serfs would have to pay the state back over the next 50 years, 49 years to be precise. Um, the terms, uh, on the one hand, were very generous in the sense that the peasants were actually emancipated with land, which was extremely unusual for any emancipation, uh, no other emancipation in Europe, in the United States or in, in Brazil, for example, emancipated with land. The problem was the peasants wanted all of the land. They believed it was theirs. They believed that only those who worked the land had a moral claim to land. Uh, and so they felt the gentry had no right to the land at all whereas the gentry felt it was their land uh, and they had every right to it. So there were basically two ir irreconcilable views there. And, of course, both sides were deeply embittered by the terms of the emancipation. Both felt that they'd been, been betrayed. Uh, and um, so clearly nobody was very happy. So stick to the serfs. What did they do? They got this deal. Uh, it seemed on paper, um, <laughs> when it was read out in the churches, to be a grand thing, but dissatisfaction instantly set in. So what did they do? Well, th they didn't have a great deal of choice. They, mm -hmm. um, did the they end, still sell on the estates, by and large? They did. They weren't allowed to move, you see. that although still they, weren't allowed They to weren't move. allowed to move. Oh, they're, right. they're sort of, the legal authority over them was transferred from the landlord to the commune, to the community, and they were all responsible for each other. So that made it, uh, people just couldn't take off. They still had to pay taxes. The community still had to pay uh, all their dues. They had to serve in the army. So in a sense, the bondage was transferred from the landlord to the commune. Uh, and that remained the same up until really t after the 1905 revolution. So, so what could they say to each other, we're free? When they, when they said we're free, what could they mean to each other? When well, they, they meant said that, that the landlord couldn't flog us anymore, that the landlord couldn't uh, exercise that power over us uh, in the way that, uh, you know, he had exercised the power of a slave owner if he chose to exercise it over them. That was gone, and that was, um, you know, indisputable change brought about by the uh, emancipation what they lost was access to woods, forests, meadows, which had been an integral part of their uh, economy. And they now had to pay for that, which they were furious about, because they thought, this is ours. <coughs> um, Simon, can we then switch to the landowners? They, they weren't pleased either. They weren't. I mean, this was a big psychological blow to, to the nobility. It had been the striking definition of nobility that you were allowed, uh, and only nobles were allowed to own serfs. So removing that was, was a big problem for the nobles psychologically. It gave them a sort of big gap. Um, and it wasn't clear how they would respond to it. Um, there were two possible responses, really. One, of course, nobles everywhere in Europe, including here, were quite adaptable and quite flexible. So w one group of nobles sells off lands that they don't want any longer to other nobles who turn them into big agricultural enterprises. And then the nobles who sold the land moved into the towns and start acting as urban rentiers. They make uh, money out of the property in the city. So that's quite a, uh, a flexible and adaptable uh, uh, option to take. The alternative, of course, was to sink into a kind of uh, stupor and not not really uh, develop anything, and uh, Chekhov, of course, talks about that. But either way, whichever group you take, um, the, the nobles did not become what the government had hoped that they would become, which was leaders of a new civic nation. Instead, they became a kind of pressure group acting for themselves, because they weren't satisfied with the sort of compensation they got 
uh, from the emancipation settlement. The idea of the government was to say, well, look, we are going to create some new local authorities, the Ziemstwa, in 1864, and you nobles will have a sort of political role in that that you've never had before. But in fact, the Ziemstwa brought for the nobles really more responsibility than power, and the nobles had lost the essential compact that had kept Imperial Russia going in the previous two centuries, that the nobles would sacrifice corporate political authority for total or almost total control over their subject peasantry. They'd lost that, and they weren't quite sure how they were going to replace it. In fact, in one way, there'd be no uh, local, let's let's say, local government, because the nobles did everything, didn't they? That's they, right. They, ran, they, ran, they were the nobles, and then there were the serfs, wasn't much in between, and they ran the serfs, so we didn't need a local government, they did it for the Tsar. That's absolutely right, and the same could be said of justice, of course. Uh, that had also been run largely by the nobles and their bailiffs on the estates. So the emancipation of the serfs, as Shane said earlier on, was postponed because it was going to involve automatically uh, the need for a very wide range of extra reforms, totally to reconstitute the nature of Russian government in the 1860s. Sarah, do we have any con- a few one or two concrete examples of what happened between the serfs and the landowners in the next five ten years from eighteen sixty one? We can certainly uh, see some some examples um, illustrated in literature, and uh, as Simon mentioned, Chekhov, um, his play The Cherry Orchard, um, which is um, a, a classic example of um, the, the 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 nobility who sink into that kind of um, stupor of nostalgia for the old ways and who seem to be unable to move on uh, to do anything different with their lives. Uh, and um, in this play, you see um, a character who is the son of a former serf and who is developing himself as a businessman, wanting to buy. Um, Where does he get his money from? Is it? Not, it's not quite clear in the cherry orchard. It isn't it? quite. It isn't. Really really made clear no. um, but there's the, there's this sense that he's part of a sort of an emerging um, rising social class that is able to sort of uh, make money uh, and um, he wants to buy the estate from the um, the aristocratic um, uh, landowner uh, la- landlady um, who um, has fallen on hard times and um, has debts that she needs to pay and um, in, in this play you sense that that sort of tension between um, the the hankering after tradition the um, the nostalgia for the old life and the um, what is I suppose portrayed in the play is a kind of an, an insensitivity um, towards um, towards that feeling of, of nostalgia and, and the, the heritage that might be lost by the people coming up wanting to make the changes. Um, and so the play ends with the, the, the symbolic cutting down of the cherry orchard, um, which represents the old way of life, the sort of the beautiful but not really very useful way of life. Um, and, uh, you know, and so this is, this is sort of ripped down in the name of progress. Was there, uh, Shane, was there any sense in which Alexander regretted this or and thought he could have done it better or it, once, it, once he got going, was it unstoppable? I think pretty much it was. I, I mean, I think Alexander is the central figure in the emancipation. Although he takes a back seat, uh, he doesn't involve himself with the nitty-gritty of it. At crucial times, he intervenes the proce- in the process to make sure it doesn't halt, to make sure it doesn't stall, which is what had always happened under his father, for example. Nine times Nicholas tried to do something about serfdom, and nine times he failed. The difference under Alexander was that when the process stalled, he actually intervened. He's, uh, he gave a jolt to it. He, um, he, for example, when it 
broke down in the, or in the bureaucratic uh, process, he established a committee outside the bureaucracy to actually drive it through. So I think Alexander is the central figure in in it at all times. Um, I. I don't think um, he regretted doing it. He recognised it had to be done. I think he was aware that the consequences of it would be difficult to deal with. And later on, he did become more conservative uh, as disappointment set in, as people tried to assassinate him several times. Yeah, yeah. the assassination rears its head again. Uh, And they got him in the end, of course. They did, unfortunately. Yes. Yes. Simon, Simon Dixon, let's talk about social mobility now. This was accelerated by the fact that Russia began to develop an industrial proletariat. It began towards the end of the 19th century, developed industry, and by the beginning of the First World War, it was the fifth biggest economy in in the world, and it was pounding ahead. Uh, How did that play in? Did a lot of the serfs, as they did in many parts of Europe and America, leave the land and go to these cities to, to work in the in, in industries? Yes, the big industrial developments came in the 1890s, mm. but they came on the back of what was effectively a, a, a population on the move all the time. The problem was, as, as Shane said earlier, that in, in principle, uh, the, serfs, uh, the peasants, freed peasants, remained tied to the commune, and that was a, 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 an arrangement designed to make sure that Russia did not develop a kind of landless proletariat that had caused so much trouble in Russian eyes in Europe in the revolutions of 1848. But what the uh, reformers did not see coming was a big demographic expansion a big expansion of the population in the 1860s and 70s, which meant there wasn't enough land for everybody to work. So what you got was a whole sort of flux of population, peasants moving from the countryside, where they stayed in the summer for the harvest, into the cities in the winter, uh, where they'd get all sorts of labouring jobs and so on, or in the female case, they'd move into into service. So what you, you have an extraordinary sort of sense of population on the move and uh, a sense of uncertainty, of, of identity. Are these people peasants? still or are they beginning to become a sort of proletariat some of course stay in the cities and become a a residential proletariat but most right through to the 1910s are still permanently on the move and that created a big problem for the government in keeping track of them can we bring back the 23 or 20 plus million state peasants who are like serfs and that turned the whole thing from 20 million to 40 million of them now 40 million people on the move in those few decades, yeah, is is enormous. So, can you give us some idea of well, the enormity of it? It's one reason why the Russian police archives are so big. Of course, one tends to think of the Russian police archives as as a very sort of uh, uh, formal and despotic organisations, but they're mostly full of people trying to policemen trying to find people. They they were just sort of wandering about. Uh, so this is this is a really serious problem for. Uh, the Russian government, certainly, yes. But how did it affect... There must have been some infrastructures which were uh, held together by this mass, these millions and millions and millions of serfs. Uh, if people were loosening their bonds and then changing, however slowly, moving from the land to the cities, this great one of the great movements in history, they're doing that. Can you think of any bigger effects than that you've said, or is it slow, accreting, and, and doesn't affect itself until the First World War? Uh, well, certainly it's slow in accretion, and certainly in industrial terms, of course, it doesn't really take off until the 1890s. But this movement had a, an effect on all sorts of things. Just think of marriage, for example. If priests are supposed to read out the bans on the basis of knowing uh, uh, their flock and knowing where they, they've been, it's very difficult for them to do that. So on the one hand, you have a regime which is preaching the virtues of marriage, and yet 
yet on the other hand you have priests who are nervous of actually conducting marriages in case it later turns out that they've in, made some infraction of the regulations. A whole series of social consequences of people moving about in this way. Was there a sense uh, that the landowners lost any grip at all that they had? Any, <coughs> any, I beg any grip at all on they had on controlling the vast tracts of Russia which they controlled through their serfs? Um, I think... Um, I think there was a sense of uh, of, a, of a, a, a lack of control, um, but it was. I think it was. I think it was a sort of a a, a gradual um, a gradual sense. Um, there was still very much the idea that the um, the educated classes wanted to try to um, to capitalise on what had happened and reconnect um, with the people. And so we have a lot of, um, for example. Um, in the 1870s, um, uh, university students um, who wanted to try and go and live on the land and get to know the peasants. This was called the populism movement. Um, so that was, a, I think, a, a sense of trying to, to trying to keep control of um, a, an idea of trying, trying to sort of get, get a grip on and a better understanding of what was happening. Um, was there a sense... Shane, was there a sense that further reforms were needed, but people thought they'd gone far enough? Well, there was a, the original reformers did have a project for a whole series of reforms. Simon's already mentioned the Zemstra reform, the local government. Uh, what they tried to do was to turn these serfs into citizens. There was uh, very important judicial reform as well, which for the first and only time in Russian history, including today, created an independent judiciary. Uh, that was one of the major reforms. Later on, uh, Alexander uh, had a military reform which created a modern conscript army rather than the old serf-based one. Uh, but they recognised this was a long-term project. It wasn't a single act wasn't going to accomplish it, that uh, you're dealing with an illiterate population, ones that have no notion of modern citizenship. And so um, they recognised it was a very long-term process. The tragedy was that the successors of Alexander, his son Alexander III and Nicholas II, turned out to be so um, hopeless, so inadequate as czars, in that they led the country up a blind alley. They didn't continue to develop what Alexander had done uh, and I think that was what um, where things started to go awry not because the act itself was fundamentally flawed but simply because it was only the starting point and it's unreasonable I think to expect that one act would solve all of Russia's problems for all time Simon, Simon Dixon the, the, from the time of Peter the Great he'd said catch up with Europe uh, and he'd done his best and, and catching up with Europe, become westernised or, or perish, as it were, on the outskirts. And this uh, this had gone in an effete way, you have suggested, this has been suggested in the news, but now it's becoming dynamic again. They're catching up with the industry and, and that sort of thing. Um, was this... Were, were they aware of a big interior, internal change to the whole society? Because they had lost the serfs, they were industrial, they were powering away, they were part of the economy. Did that have a big effect? Yes, I mean, the question really, ever since Peter, had been how to cope with westernisation, and Russians have never really felt wholly comfortable with it. There are those who wanted to take it further and faster, uh, and ultimately, of course, their attempts were blown to smithereens, along with Alexander II when he was assassinated in, uh, in 1881. And yet there were always those who could say, well, look, this westernising attempt is fundamentally un-Russian. It's foreign, it's alien, and this was the sort of thing that Dostoevsky argued. 
argued, for example, in his Diary of a Writer in the 1870s. Classically, he's very clever, he took a lot of child abuse cases and said, well, how can you have a Western legal system which justifies a defence lawyer for someone who's abused their children? So there was a whole series of ways in which you could attack uh, the the westernising attempts of uh, the government in the 1860s. Sarah, say 50 years on, say 1905, mm. how far had the condition of the serfs improved? Not a great deal. This was the uh, this this was the thing for the uh, the serf the, the the former serfs the peasants uh, living in their, um, their their communities their peasant communities um, in the rural areas. Um, very little, in fact, changed. There was nothing um, done to sort of uh, provide any kind of social development for them. Um, the vast majority remained illiterate. Um, ignorant, um, rooted in problems of um, of alcoholism, domestic violence, um, barely just making a, a living on subsistence. Uh, so yes, the the conditions really took a very long time to, to to change at all. It was it was really didn't make a great deal of difference in practical terms. How do you look back? How, how do you look, Shane? How do you look back on the effect of the emancipation of the Serbs? I think it was the greatest act of social engineering in the 19th century. It was uh, a tremendous achievement. If you contrast with the United States, to free f- uh, four million slaves cost 700,000 lives. In the Civil War? In the Civil War, yes. In in Russia, there were a few riots afterwards and a couple of hundred people died. But 40, uh, or 22 million and then 23 million people were freed with virtually no violence. That's unique. If you think of earlier Russian reformers like Ivan, Peter, or Stalin later on, all their great reforms were accompanied by massive amounts of violence. This was done virtually entirely peacefully. It was a great act, a a real achievement. How did they manage to do it peacefully, sir? Well, I think that everybody had been waiting for it, effectively, for such a long time that that, that people saw it coming, really. And I entirely agree with Shane. It's an unusual thing in Russian history. On the whole, we associate Russian history with wild zigzags from one to another. But this was a genuinely... uh, thoughtful, well-planned process which on the whole worked. The only thing that really upset it was the uh, huge demographic expansion in the 60s which the reformers couldn't have seen coming. Uh, And in many ways peasants did possibly become a little bit more prosperous. There's quite a debate about that towards the end of the 19th century. They certainly seem to have more money to spend by the end of the 19th century. So uh, I don't think it's, it's, it's at all a bad thing to have done. Well, thank you very much. Sorry, sorry for the cough. Thanks to Sarah Hutspeth, Simon Dixon and Shane O'Rourke. Next week we'll be talking about Margaret Anjou, Queen of England, whose attempt to hold on to power, people say, sparked the Wars of the Roses. Thank you for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. One thing that we left out, we, we didn't talk very much about uh, others' views of the peasants after the 1860s. Mm, yes, I mean, that's in, true, yes. in, in a way, what happens after 1861 is suddenly all these millions of people who have been non-people until that point, they've not been mentioned in legislation, even though a lot of legislation affected them, all these peasants are suddenly the talking point for Russian culture and politics in the 1860s and 70s. And the crucial point was... Are they really the salt of the earth? Is 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 the oh, Russian? We should peasantry. have mentioned the souls, the soul of Russia. Yeah, we? Yeah. Uh, uh, we did uh, mention <laughs> it at one point. Uh, are these people the salt of the earth and therefore to be relied upon, or are they, on the contrary, a kind of sort of self-seeking, corrupt, uh, self-dealing, twisting bunch of sort of countercultural subversives? 
and there, were, there was a you know a big discussion about that, not only in verbal terms but also in pictures. The the Russian wanderers, the great realist painters, uh, Kramskoy and so on, have these marvelous paintings of peasants about which there was a huge debate. You know, are they painting someone who is very self-sacrificial in the manner of Platon Karataev, mm. the the peasant in War and Peace, or are they you know superstitious, the evil eye, all this kind of thing? That was a big debate. And of course, they were both in many well, ways. Well, exactly. You <laughs> could, you, you, the, 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 it would be artificial to suppose that one or the other is right, but that was a major sense of how little, really, educated society had any idea of what uh, the peasantry really were. Well, there's <coughs> masses of people listen to this, which is great, because it means that I can make up for something that I should have said. I'm fascinated by the idea of the peasants, the serfs, carrying the soul of Russia. And that had ramifications in the literature and in the psyche. I, I'd like you to talk about that. And you're pointing to Sarah. Sarah, you're, you're, you're designated as the soul person. Right. <laughs> um, because there was this idea that... Um, originating from the the sort of the, the the Slavophile philosophers, that the Russian peasants had been living in um, in a sort of a, a commune type structure, which was inherently um, uh, had a sort of an inherent unity um, and, and level um, sort of level society. Um, it was a it was a kind of an, an innately Christian model for model for life and i so I, I think this is where where that idea came from of course that was you know quite quite idealized uh but um those writers like for example dostoevsky who subscribed um very much to those type of type of philosophies um believed that um yes the russian people the russian ordinary um peasant population um were this repository of um sort of innate brotherhood um, and and togetherness, and that this was what this was what the the nobility needed needed to learn from them. Mm. Um, and he also felt very much that um, because of the suffering they had endured, they they provided a sort of a Christ-like model. Um, but he also recognised, you know, their their, their their moments of brutality and their alcoholism and the you know the issues with domestic violence and um, and, and violent criminality as well. One of the things I think uh, we need to mention as well is Russia's status as a great power. I think that was a critical factor in driving the reform through because um, after uh, the Crimean War, that status was in doubt. And, f and for all the Russian elites from Peter's time down to the present, that status is critically important that um, to see Russia fall down the ranks of a great power, not to be treated as a great power was intolerable. For Alexander, I think personally, this was very, very important that he identified with the army, he identified with Russia as a great power, and uh, he'd seen what had happened to the Ottoman Empire and what would later happen to China as well. And I think uh, it's that sense that Russia can't just you know, they could have sat back and done nothing and just let thing, the system trundle on for another couple of decades, but it w that would have uh, meant that Russia sort of inevitably declined as a great power. So I think that's a very important factor driving the emancipation as well. You quite rightly said, of course, that uh, by that point, by 1855, by the time of the Crimea, serfdom seemed a backward sort of economic system in many ways. But it's perhaps worth saying that that, that had happened quite recently because for most of Russia's early modern period, of course, serfdom made a lot of economic sense. So long as people in the West, and particularly in this country, wanted to buy so-called naval stores, let's say pitch, hemp, tar and all that kind of thing, masts, all the things you need to build a wooden navy... 
Serfdom was ideally uh, pre prepared for that. It doesn't need an awful lot of skill so long as you've got all the natural resources. You just need a cheap labour force. The problem for the Russian eco economy came when the demand changed from a wooden navy to uh, an ironclad navy, which is, of course, technologically more sophisticated. And at that point, a serf labour is not necessarily efficient. Uh, uh, well, in fact, it certainly wasn't efficient. So until that point, you couldn't necessarily say that free labour was economically better than unfree labour, or more efficient than unfree labour. But once the, the whole sort of demand uh, in the West turns for a different type of product, serfdom is outmoded, and it's a problem. I'm surprised that you didn't um, take up more of Tolstoy's returning more against the Serbs. It, it seems to me to be quite dramatic, but maybe I'm, my tendency to exaggeration can run away with me. Turning against the Serbs? I mean, I don't... Um, well, I well don't having a much more cynical view of them. Well, I, I certainly think that, uh, that in Anna Karenina, by that point he's <coughs> had ten years of working with his own Serbs, of course, on his own estate, and uh, discovered that they're not quite so malleable as he thought they were going to be, and they don't want to take up all the sorts of reforms that he'd hoped to introduce on his own estate, that they're much more cunning than he'd imagined. And so Anna Karenina gives a much more variegated view of the peasantry than the sort of cuddly peasant that you Yes, oh in. yes indeed. No, I agree with that. I mean, I think um, but but I think what Tolstoy sees in, in that kind of situation is, is not that um, the the serfs are in any way you know problematic themselves it, it it's more of a problem of the relationship you know that they 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 they're in their entrenched distrust of the of of the gentry um that has provoked this sort of quiet stubborn um resistance basically as a sort of sort of a um a, a rebellion by by non-action and by resistance last word one of the problems of course is that many of those writing about serfs didn't actually have much contact with them or peasants and so when they actually met them and dealt with them in the flesh it was a bit of an eye-opener mm. and i think it's much easier to write nice things about them in the abstract mm. than when you actually act, had to deal with them over business or over land or something so i suppose being being beaten down for hundreds of years and that passing on from generation to generation in the same place they did that to my grandfather, they did that to your great grandmother, and so on and so forth. Does your you, the carapace would be very strong, wouldn't it? We don't. We're yeah. going to get on with our lives, and as much as we can, ignore them, in spite of them, as well as alongside them. Is that is that something in that? Yes, I think I definitely think so. yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Oh gosh, we've got three absolutes. Time yes. to finish. Thank <laughs> you very much. Should I tea or coffee? Oh, I'd love a cup of coffee. Coffee, coffee. coffee. Yes. In Our Time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson. Just before you go, I want to tell you how you can find the best stories from across the BBC. The Drama of the Week podcast showcases our favourites, from brand new writing to classic plays. Explosive drama like Paradise Lost, War of the Worlds and Blood, Sex and Money by Emile Zola. All you need to do is subscribe to Drama of the Week wherever you get your podcasts. Podcast lovers rejoice. Meet Pocket Cast, your new favourite podcast app for listening, search and discovery. Our beautifully designed app gives you more control, makes it easier to find and organise podcasts and offers powerful tools to customise listening. To hear all your favourite shows, download our free app at pocketcast.com or find us in the Apple app or Google Play stores.